You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kamala Harris is San Francisco's district attorney. She's been named one of Newsweek's 20 Most Powerful Women. Her new book is Smart on Crime, A Career Prosecutor's Plan to Make Us Safer. Thank you for joining me, Kamala. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Kamala, your book starts out with a little sketch of who you are, and I think that's important as to how you developed your smart on crime theory. So give us an idea of of who you are. (laughs) Well, I am um, one of two daughters of parents who met when they were graduate students at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1960s. And they met when they were both active in the civil rights movement. And um, so I'm one of those people who grew up surrounded by adults who pretty much spent full time marching and shouting about that thing called justice. And, um, and so for me, the heroes of that important civil rights movement were the lawyers. And that was Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston and Constance Baker Motley. And, and they were using the skill of the great profession of law to translate the passion in the streets into the courtrooms of our country. And frankly, reminding all of those people who needed to be reminded of that great promise we articulated in 1776 which is, of course, that we're all and should be treated as equal. So that's who I am, and that's why I wanted to become a lawyer. Um, At a very young age, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I went on to Howard University in Washington, D.C., and then came back home to California and attended Hastings College of the Law, and straight out of law school made the decision that I thought that my fight for the pursuit of justice um, could be and should be as a prosecutor. And so I went to the Alameda County DA's office, which... As an aside, I'll tell you, was considered to be one of the best DA's offices in the country at the time, and in large part, the reputation came from the fact that years before, the elected DA of Alameda County was Earl Warren, mm. who, of course, was the, the Chief Warren Justice yes. of the uh, United States Supreme Court and the author of Brown versus Board of Education. And back to who I am, I'll tell you that I'm part of the second class to integrate Berkeley Public Schools. So the fact that I was years later working in the office of the man who had authored that decision, is, is, you know, there's a certain symmetry about that that I, I enjoy. That's <laughs> understandable. Now, you make a really interesting statement at the beginning of this book that I think is the theme of the book, which is that safety is a civil right. Absolutely. You know, when we think about those things that are, you know, fundamental to a productive and a happy existence, um, you know, there. It is true. So, so obviously, equality is essential. We must be seen and treated as equals, and we should strive for a society that that treats everyone as equals. Um, I think that education should be seen <laughs> in the same light as a basic civil right um, and safety. Um, if people are living in a state of fear in a community where they don't um, trust their neighbors or they don't feel that they can hold on to their property without it being vandalized, then they're in a constant state of panic and concern, and chaos naturally evolves from that environment. So when I talk about safety as a basic civil right, I believe that we should, as a society and certainly as a country, commit ourselves as we do to any other basic civil right to this issue and notion that all communities must be safe.
and the people in those communities must live in a way that they feel safe. That's a distinction you make. That's an interesting one. Uh, the distinction between feeling safe and being safe. Not always uh, congruent, are they? That's correct. And that, in exactly. And we could go into a whole different conversation, to your point, on the, 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 the opposite of that, right, which is the fear issue. Mm-hmm. Fear based on perception mm-hmm. that is based on reality or is based on perception, you know, because of, of, of whatever is being thrown out in the environment that mm-hmm. causes people to have a sense of fear even though they're in no actual danger. You also talk in, in the beginning about uh, economics and crime, and you've done a great deal to apply the principle of economics to fight crime, which I think is a, a, a great approach. I think, Rick, that we are in a society, well, we're, well government in particular, it has become in many ways obsolete. Okay, so how's that for a controversial statement that's, that's <laughs> everyone probably agrees with. Can you be controversial and everyone agrees with you at the same time? Um, I think government is obsolete to, to, to a large degree, and I, and I think law enforcement and the way that we do our work um, can be considered obsolete when you put it in the perspective of measuring success. And have we built into the system, have we built into the way we do business metrics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which then would force us to look at, at, at our productivity and our processes in a way that l- questions the cost-benefit, right, of mm-hmm. the system, and sure. also that just measures success, period. Um, you know, my mother was a scientist, and she taught us and, and she thought often of her work by way of thinking about, you know, posing a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then testing it out, and if it didn't work, go back, reorder the hypothetical, right? Sure. Change the variables, and then test it out again. But not defend the first decision just because you did it that way, (laughs) (laughs) even if it didn't work. And I think that when it comes to the criminal justice system, in particular in California, the numbers aren't working. No, okay, it's just not. not working. You know, on an annual basis, we release 120,000 prisoners in California because they've served their time. Within three years of their release, 70% reoffend, 70% recidivate. It's the highest recidivism rate in the country. Really? I would tell you that that if this were any, if this were a private business, fired. If this were a public institution, <laughs> yeah. a, a medical institution, absolutely, the board of trustees would shut it down. Right. Your book is divided into uh, two parts, but actually, let's talk a little bit about something that you've done here called the Back on Track program. Tell us a little bit, what is Back on Track? So Back on Track is a reentry initiative, Mm -hmm. and reentry is a criminal justice concept that um, asks us to focus on known offenders who are reentering the community after they have been held accountable for their crime. And so that gets to the recidivism issue, right? Which sure. is that we have we we know that seventy percent of known offenders will reoffend. So instead of closing our eyes to that fact, let's actually see it for what it is. Let's build a system up around the idea that they need to be held accountable. They need to go to jail if that's what the crime calls for. But that they're all coming out. A lot of them are. And let's have a plan for how we're going to reenter them so they don't do what is predictable, which is reoffend. And then, you know, be, become part of that revolving door of crime. So reentry initiative in San Francisco that we created back on track. 
I chose to focus on the 18 through 24-year-old, first-time low-level drug sales offender who is involved in nonviolent crime. So why 18 through 24-year-old um, focus? Well, when I was at Howard University, when we were in college, we were 18 through 24, and we were called college kids. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. But when you turn 18 and you're in the system, you're considered to be an adult, period, mm-hmm. without any regard to the fact that that's the very phase of life in which we have invested billions of dollars in this world in places called colleges and universities, mm-hmm. knowing that's the prime phase of life during which we mold and shape and direct a human being to become a productive adult. So. We focused on that age range predominantly and um, basically brought on board the the business community, Chamber of Commerce, brought on board the labor unions, in particular building trades, plumbers, carpenters, and then also brought on board our nonprofit community-based groups. And we addressed the fact that for this first-time low-level nonviolent drug sales offender, most of them needed to get a high school equivalency degree and be enrolled in City College. Almost none of them had employable skills, so we asked our friends at the carpenters and and, and the plumbers unions, would you enroll them in your pre-apprenticeship programs? We addressed the fact that a lot of them are parents who Mm. have a natural desire to parent their child, but not necessarily the skills. And also it makes them more stable, too. Absolutely. And so we brought on board the community groups who could introduce them, you know, introduce these young parents to the PTA mm-hmm. and, and do the things that they naturally would want to do but didn't necessarily have the resources to do. And over the course of this initiative back on track, we have reduced the recidivism or reoffense rate for this population from 54% to less than 10%. It's been so successful that the National DA's Association chose it as a model for DA's offices around the country. And then last month, the United States Department of Justice posted it on their website as a, um, as a, as an example of innovation in law enforcement for the country. And then we actually wrote a bill. And uh, Speaker Karen Bass sponsored it. And we took it up to Sacramento. And Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed our bill. He really did, making, boy. <laughs> making back on track a model for the state. Mm-hmm. And this gets to the, one of the other points I make in the book, and to the point of your reaction to that. I really, as a career prosecutor, I really absolutely believe that there are certain issues, to be sure, that are partisan, some are bipartisan, but some are nonpartisan. And crime has to be seen as a nonpartisan issue, mm-hmm. right? Which is that we all want to be safe. Sure. Everybody does. I don't know of any robber that approached a victim and first asked, well, are you a Democrat or a Republican, right? Not <laughs> it's often. not no. happening that way. No. And so we all want to be safe. We all want to know that we are using limited government resources in a way that is most efficient. We all want to believe that um, we are going to have a society that will break down silos and actually instead collaborate around collective concerns. And the issue in particular of of recidivism among nonviolent offenders is a very big issue when we look objectively at what's occupying our criminal justice system. And it gets to the economic aspects too. Absolutely. It costs a boatload of money it, to keep these people in jail. It's insane. It's insane. But here's the point that I have to make and articulate. I am not saying that people should not be held accountable for their crime. They should. Mm -hmm. You commit a crime, you need to be held accountable. There's a reason we have laws and rules. And one of them is that we just, you know, you just can't do anything you feel like doing. You know, my mother used to have this saying. 
and um, she'd say, well, you know, Kamala, there, there may be a um, hundred reasons why one man kills another man, but the, the man's still dead, right? <laughs> right, yeah. this, this is the woman who raised me, <laughs> or the civil rights oh. activist, but that's what she said. And her point was, you know, at some point, we can talk about the reasons and we can even put them in the context of, of excuses or explanations. But fact is fact. And if someone commits a crime, they should be held accountable. But after they have been held accountable, mm -hmm. we should also recognize that we've got to figure out a way to integrate them back into our society mm -hmm. and do it in a way that diminishes the likelihood that they'll commit another crime. And that's, that's the premise behind a lot of the work that I've done, not only around the reentry initiative back on track, but also looking, for example, at, at, at an issue that many people might think is a small and significant issue, such as truancy right, among elementary school students, right? Really? Now, that's interesting. Well, so here's how it came about. Um, I did an assessment of who the homicide victims were in San Francisco mm -hmm. who were under the age of 25 when they were killed and learned that 94% of them are high school dropouts. Mm -hmm. So then I went over to the school district and I learned that of the students who had been designated as habitually and chronically truant, 40% mm -hmm. are elementary school students. Really? Yeah. Yes, and when I'm saying habitually and chronically truant, I'm not talking about missing a couple of days. I'm talking about up to 60 to 80 days of unexcused absences out of a 180-day school year. That's might as well not be going it's to school. It's criminal. Yes. It's criminal. Mm -hmm. And so basically what happened is when I learned all of this, I, I went over and I asked the superintendent at the time, would you set up a meeting for me with all of the principals and administrators of San Francisco Unified School District? We had the meeting, and I shared with them that I had decided, one, I, I think this is outrageous. I know we all do. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to play the bad guy on this, and I've decided I'm going to prosecute parents for truancy. And, uh, you know. Parents, <laughs> parents are not welcoming this news, I'm guessing. Well, you know, it was kind of a, a, a new approach. Uh -huh. Well, it makes which, sense. But it makes sense. And let me tell you what we did. We started what we call a DA mediation. And essentially, I assigned prosecutors to go and sit with the principals and administrators when they sat with the parents. And the prosecutors I assigned, I said, when you go over there, you look really mean. <laughs> and so the parents <laughs> would look and say, well, who's the mean-looking dude? And the principal would say, well, that's someone that mean DA Kamala Harris sent over because she said she's going to start prosecuting you if, if we can't work this out. And let me tell you what we found out. We found cases like the case of the woman who by herself, she was raising three children, holding down two jobs, and homeless. She just needed some help. And by getting her access to the services she needed, of course the attendance rate for her children improved, and we dismissed the charges. Mm -hmm. And overall, for this initiative, over the last couple of years, we've improved the attendance rate by 20%. That's significant. And it again, is. that's an economic significance to that, because if the kids are going to school, the parents are able to work, there are more productive parts of the community. It's a feedback loop. To your very point, just last month, the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB, issued a study, and they have shown that the cost to California of truancy, the direct cost, is $1.1 billion, yes, with a B as in boy, billion dollars a year.
And the residual cost, in terms of the cost to the, the, the larger social services structure, is in the double-digit billions. It's actually costing us a lot of money to have these elementary school students miss so much school. And, you know, and, and as a career prosecutor who's also prosecuted child abuse cases, I'll tell you that there are many reasons we want our children to be in school. Mm -hmm. And one of them that may not be so obvious is that it's in school, often in elementary school, that we learn of the child. We figure out that, oh, little Johnny is not unable to learn. He just needs glasses. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Or, you know, Sally is not a discipline problem. She actually needs a hearing aid. Mm -hmm. Right? Sure. Or we learn that a child is being abused or neglected. And it's at the early stage of life that we want to deal with these issues. Yeah, because so it's easier to correct, give absolutely. some kid a lunch than it is to put him in jail absolutely. for six years. Absolutely. And, and you know, and people say sometimes, well, maybe because she's a woman that she cares about an issue like truancy. No, no. The fact is that I think that it, it, we have, as a society, marginalized the significance of addressing issues impacting children. And we've decided in some ways, oh, that's the small issue. If you want to take on big issues, you take on something else. Um, or, oh, you, you are concerned about children because they're cute and cuddly. When in fact... I've got two kids. They ain't cute and yeah. <laughs> Are they teenagers? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the fact is, I'm looking at that six-year-old not because... They're cute and cuddly, but because I'm looking at who that child will be in just about 10 years if we don't address that six-year-old's issues right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, you and everybody else will be knocking on my door as DA when that 16-year-old is a menace to the community. Mm -hmm. And it's sure. going to cost us a lot more. Um, my reentry initiative back on track, okay? It cost me $10,000 every time I prosecute a felony. It cost us about $35,000 a year to house somebody in the county jail, $49,000 a year to house someone in the state prison. Back on track as an initiative costs less than $5,000 per participant. So on the money alone, it makes sense. Let's bring up another significant economic issue for our country, workforce development. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then talk about the wasted human capital. Sure. We, right? I mean, there are only so many Starbucks and McDonald's there can be in this country. And we, that's not the kind of employment we want to build. We want to build a skilled workforce that will produce Absolutely stuff that will right. be able to export. That's right. Now, uh, one thing I want you to talk a little bit about was what you called the crime pyramid. And I think this is a very interesting theory because it kind of gets back to this aspect yeah. of putting the efforts where they need to be put. So I'm glad you raised it. So, okay, in the book, as you've pointed out, um, it, there are two parts. The first part is basically outlining the myths that I think mm -hmm. have caused us to, to, to really slow down what could be progress around criminal justice policy. Mm -hmm. One of the myths is that all crime is violent crime. Mm -hmm. And I understand where it comes from, and it, it's so cliché to attack the media, but I'm going to do that now. Um, the, and, but not your show. <laughs> but, but, but here's the reality of it. Most people think they understand the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. understandably, because they are surrounded, if not bombarded, by information about the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. It's the front page story on the newspaper. It is the leading story on the evening news. It is the subject of their favorite television series and probably their favorite movie. And you know that there's a saying in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. Most of the information 
the general public receives about the criminal justice system suggests that most of the crime in the system is violent crime and sensationally violent crime mm. or horrendous for some reason or another, either because of its peculiarity or because of its viciousness. So the public then has an appetite for criminal justice policy that understandably is, hey, if you're going to talk to me about what's in the criminal justice system, all I want you to do is lock them up for as long as you can. Sure. And what I'm asking through this book, Smart on Crime, is that we recognize that, in fact, what's in the criminal justice system can be best understood by thinking of the pyramid. At the top of the pyramid are the most serious crimes, understandably. They're at the top, they're our priority because they wreak the most damage to the victims in our society. And for those reasons, always a priority. But they're actually the fewest, thankfully, the fewest number of crimes. What is occupying all of our resources and time and attention is what's at the middle and the base of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. At the low level, and in particular, nonviolent crimes. And I'm simply suggesting that when we see the, the crime issue on the, the pyramid, we then, I think, can easily understand that we cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach to crime. Like the, th the three strikes law? Well, you know, I mean, but basically That's it's... That's a one-size-fits-all. I mean, I'm happy to talk about three strikes, but, but it, is, it is about saying that there's one way to address violent crime, mm -hmm. and it is proven that there are other ways to address nonviolent crime with the hope of what we all want, which is that we'll reduce the likelihood that that, that offender will reoffend. And so for nonviolent crime, we have to understand that most of the people who commit those crimes are going to reoffend if we don't intervene. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing that the public health model that works for a health epidemic is absolutely perfectly suited also to help us with the crime epidemic. Interesting. And in particular to sure. realize that, like we know with the health, health epidemic, first line of attack, prevention. That's why everybody's getting that swine flu shot, right? Mm -hmm. Second line of attack, if we're too late and the sniffles start occurring, early intervention. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would be like the truancy issue. Sure. Early Truant intervention. Let's deal with it right there, right? right? And then, but if we are dealing with an epidemic in the emergency room, we are too late. We are, and it's too expensive. And so the crime pyramid, the public health model, those are all about really, I think, if we see these issues through that through that lens, you know, mm -hmm. I think that we will be smarter on crime and improve safety in our communities. Well, let's talk a little bit about three strikes. I mean, it, there's a lot of uh, talk about people who have been thrown, you know, had the, the key thrown away, uh, who have hardly had any kind of uh, violent crime or, and don't even seem like career criminals. Do you think we should repeal three strikes? I, well, first of all, let's remember how three strikes came about. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a horrendous, horrible, tragic case involving a young girl by the name of Polly Class. Sure, sure. And what was done to her, and, and, and by extension her family, by someone who should have never been free to do it, mm -hmm. was horrendous. And so the public, all of us, I think, had a very appropriate emotional response to what happened to her, which is, this is outrageous, and when we learned who did it, and we knew he had done things like this in the past, everyone understandably said, well, he, he did this horrible stuff in the past. How could he have been free to do this to this little girl? Mm -hmm. And so there was a push 
based on that appropriate emotion and, and outrage to say, hey, we need to toughen the laws around known serious and violent offenders who reoffend with a serious and violent crime. Mm. But what happened in the way that Three Strikes was written, both through the legislative process and through the initiative process, um, the third offense could be any felony, not, did not require that it was a serious and violent felony. Right. And, um, and so there were the high profile cases that involved nonviolent felonies. Sure, that, stealing videotapes. I that think, caused people to sure. be in, in prison for 25 years to life. My policy in my office is that the, that last offense has to be serious or violent. It cannot be, for example, it cannot be a petty theft mm. that would um, result in a three strikes conviction. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Internet because you mentioned this in, in the book. Um, the Internet is, has this kind of, for a large segment of the population, the Internet is this kind of really terrifying place and idea where cyber stalkers, you know, are luring young children to their doom. It's really just a giant advertising place. <laughs> um, and, and there's a lot of temptation, I think, at this point to um, restrain uh, our freedom and in sense of safety? Well, um, I, I, let me understand better what you're asking. Well, I, I mean, you, you talk, say that new kind of laws are needed to deal with yeah. the internet. What kind of laws do you think? Because, for example, there's a lot of the media companies, Hollywood in particular, is proposing uh, an idea of a law which is like three strikes. If you're accused, not not convicted, if they if a media company accuses you three times of illegal sharing, they want to cut cut off your internet forever. Now this strikes me as putting the courts, your office, in the service of you know trolling for uh, for people who have, have late fees. Sure. So, okay, a um, couple things. One, I think that we are on the verge, you know, we're very lucky to be living right now of just changing the way we have all ever existed. In, mm -hmm. in, and it's because of the rapid growth of technology mm -hmm. um, that is allowing us to communicate in ways we could never communicate before and share information. And you know, the sociological impact of this technology is just starting to, to evidence itself, right? Mm -hmm. I, we're in a, a new world. And, um, and, and it's exciting. And I would never want to be in a position to hamper or to slow down the development of this technology. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's still very much history will show in its infancy stage. Oh, yes. So that being said, there is also the reality that this new way of doing business, this new world that has opened up through the web mm -hmm. um, is no different than any other world or place. <laughs> Crimes are happening there also. Mm -hmm. And we have to now learn how to do what we have known we needed to do for generations around crime happening on the streets. We have to learn how to do that on the web and, and adopt and apply the, the essential skills that we have to keep ourselves safe um, outside of the web on the web. So what am I talking about? Well, you know, for example, we parents have known for generations, teach your child don't talk to a stranger, watch the light before you cross the street, hold my hand before you cross the street, things like that. 
We need to now teach parents, in particular, how to teach their children how to be safe on the web. Mm -hmm. um, there's another category of crime that's happening um, on the web, and that is crimes happening in seniors. Mm. You know, again, the technology is so exciting. So seniors, a lot of them, unfortunately, are very isolated. Mm -hmm. And the web allows an isolated, an otherwise isolated person to have constant interactions with other people, mm -hmm. as well as to use it as a source of information and, and entertainment. And unfortunately, though, what I find happening a lot with crimes against seniors is that some person who is not well known to the senior will ingratiate themselves and place themselves in a position of trust with the senior and then take advantage of that relationship and actually th they become a predator and, 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 and steal from that in the victim and, um, and, and wreak havoc on their lives. And I see these cases happening through relationships that are, are built up on the internet. You know, we're basically, both for the children and seniors, uh, the, the anonymous person becomes familiar, mm -hmm. and then the guards let down, and this predator takes advantage of that child or that senior. Um, so these are areas of concern for me, and these are some of the things I talk about in the book. Um, and it, it also has to do, it comes under the context also of, you know, the, the stranger danger myth, mm -hmm. right? right? Not myth, but because there are absolutely dangers from strangers. But the, the most prevalent issue that I'm seeing in terms of victimization of these types, um, the predator is someone who puts themselves in a relationship of trust. Mm -hmm. And the Internet is one tool that allows people to do that in a way that we haven't seen before. Right. And you talk about stranger danger. I think you make an interesting point that cannot be emphasized too often is that, I mean, you're more likely to get shot by somebody you're related to than somebody who you never met. Listen, one of the areas of focus for me um, that always has been a focus for me is the issue of, of and now this is going to be a really provocative point because people don't talk about it enough, but child sexual assault. I'm going to tell you, I strongly believe that we have got to shed the light on this as an issue that is impacting and has impacted far more people than you'd imagine. It's a crime that crosses socioeconomic lines. It is a crime that crosses uh, you know, ethnic and cultural lines. And it is something that no one is talking about because the vast majority of those cases, of child sexual assault cases, in those cases, the perpetrator is someone who is known to the child and is in a position of trust. It's not the stranger who snatches the kid off the street. It's someone who actually may live under the same roof with the child. Mm -hmm. and I think you make and an interesting point, too, about that children are not as resilient as we seem. Absolutely right, and that's right, and so that's one of the myths. One of the myths that's, I think, prevalent in our system is that children are resilient, meaning, oh, the kid will just grow out of it, or, oh, look, little Johnny's fine, he's playing in the sandbox. No. The thing that has been a traumatic event will be forever imprinted in the mind and on the brain of that child unless we engage in some significant intervention to acknowledge what has happened to the child in spite of what might seem to be normal behavior 
And we've got to address it. I mean, you know, the issue of, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder among children who are either growing up in a home where there is violence, domestic violence, or in a community where there's a violence, where they hear gunfire every night. That's a very real issue. And post-traumatic stress disorder is a physiological condition. It is not just psychological. It's not just going to pass. And, um, and that's why I'm actually excited that we have a great superintendent in San Francisco. His name is Carlos Garcia. And we have partnered on a number of initiatives around addressing trauma among children who are exposed to, to violence and doing what we can to get them the services and the attention they need so that they can figure out a way to cope with it and move forward and, and then be educated and not be distracted by the flashbacks and, and, and everything else that, that has really caused them to suffer. I, I like your approach because I think overall a lot of it's prevention and starting early, keeping right. people safe. As you say, right. safety is a civil right. Right. I've been speaking with Kamala Harris. Her new book is Smart on Crime, A Career Prosecutor's Plan to Make Us Safer. Thank you for joining me, Kamala. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.